from Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. President Biden visited the Pentagon for the first time as Commander-in-Chief Wednesday. His schedule included meetings with senior civilian and uniform leaders. The Hill newspaper reports President Biden was also scheduled to deliver remarks to the Pentagon workforce. The Navy's Fleet Week New York is going virtual again in 2021. More than 170,000 people saw videos on social media as part of last year's virtual Fleet Week. ABC 7 in New York reports the virtual Fleet Week will run May 26th through 31st. The Defense Department will award a multiple award contract for testing and evaluating artificial intelligence by the end of this month. Jane Pinellas, the head of testing and evaluation at the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, says the contract will cover, quote, the entire spectrum of support. FedScoop reports the contract will be open for any organization in the Defense Department to use for AI applications. The leader of the Joint All-Domain Command and Control effort, Lieutenant General Dennis Crawl, says the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley, will get a new JADC-2 strategy within days. A piece in Breaking Defense this week argues that JADC-2 makes the third offset strategy real. Bob Work is former Deputy Secretary of Defense and architect of the third offset strategy. Bob, welcome. It's great to see you. I begin with a quote. The third offset strategy is about developing the means to offset advantages or advances in anti-access area denial weapons and other advanced technologies that are proliferating, that we see proliferating around the world. That quote from one Robert Work on January 28, 2015, six years later, do you see the third offset on track, Bob? Well, first of all, it's great to be here, Francis. Uh, and I'd just like to remind the readers that the third offset strategy just one of seven lines of effort of the Defense Innovation Initiative that was announced by then Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel in November of 2014. So I am very, very pleased that all of the basic thrusts of the DII and the third offsite uh, are now evident. You know, it was a shift to focus on great power competitors, said that we needed a new strategy that was written in 2018, that the primary uh, problem we faced was a long-term strategic competition. And the very, very important thing that the Department of Defense faced was a challenge to its military technical superiority. And the third offset strategy was the line of effort to maintain our military technical superiority. And as far as I'm concerned, the department really has followed that path. They have gone after artificial intelligence. They've gone after all sorts of digital information advances, uh, new types of missiles, new types of CONOPS. And the JADC2 is the kind of thing that puts it all together. One, it's a concept, uh, but it also is going to be the nervous system and the backbone of future joint force battle networks, these big digital constructs that we put together to fight campaigns. So, yes, I would say that the third offset is alive and well, but, you know, I'm a biased observer. 
I went back and read the speech at which you basically rolled out the, the philosophy, the theory behind the third offset. And it strikes me as we look at that, as we think about it more, more philosophically, that the, this is really the nature of the, the core of the Defense Department for the foreseeable future, isn't it? There are three elements that you talked about in that speech uh, that were kind of the main differences between the first and, second, uh, and first and second offsets and what you were proposing that day six years ago. Uh, and those were much more trying, temporal component, no single monolithic adversary like the Cold War, tech breakthroughs driven by the private sector. Those, those are still exactly what we're, we're looking at and facing today, aren't we, Bob? Yes, I think that's true. Uh, on the temporal aspect, what I meant by that is in the Cold War, we were going up against a competitor who could compete with us technologically in niche areas like space, nuclear weapons, and undersea capabilities. The Soviets were extremely good in submarines and submarine warfare. But on the broader technological playing field, they just could not hang with us. They couldn't do the semiconductors and the very advanced combat systems. The Chinese are a different kettle of fish altogether. They've got the technological metal to stick with us step for step. They're going to press us and maybe surpass us in some areas. We're going to press them and surpass them in others. But the key thing about the temporal aspect is we're not going to get an offset strategy that gives us a decade or two advantage. We're going to constantly have to be moving forward. The Chinese will make a move. We'll make a second move. Uh, we'll make a move. The Chinese will quickly follow. So it's that temporal aspect of the competition that's going to be very much different than what we faced in the Cold War. We talk about iterative technology all the time on this program in the context of the Defense Department and all across the enterprise of the federal government. That, that iterative idea seems to be at play here too, Bob, and I wonder if that means that rather than having a fourth offset at some point in the future, if you think we may just be in the third offset mode for decades or longer than decades where we're constantly competing in the way that you just described. Yes. I mean, this is a decade-long competition and decades probably. Uh, the Chinese are going to be the most difficult strategic competitor we've ever faced. They can hang with us economically. Uh, they can hang with us technologically. And they've got a vast talent pool. And they try to use it as best they can. So this is going to be a knockdown, dragout competition. Now, my money's on the U.S. primarily because we can call upon an extraordinarily innovative tech base in the United States. And uh, JADC2 is just one manifestation of the way the department is now thinking differently about how it's going to have to operate in the future. Uh, and we're having all sorts of experiments, et cetera. Now, you know, I'm a glass half full type of guy. Uh, I'd rather be going faster, but the department is moving out smartly. That's for certain. Um, 30 seconds, Bob. Uh, the technological part of it, the, depart uh, the department seems to have its arms around. The economic part of it, given what we've talked about, about uh, budgets and so on, is that potentially more challenging? Well, I think my own view is from 23 on out, fiscal year 2023 on out, we have to plan for really no better than a flat budget, possibly inflated. Uh, so that means that our prioritization is going to have to be really, really sharp. 
And we're going to have to be ruthless about getting rid of capabilities that are okay, but not really good enough. So this always sets up all sorts of arguments within the department and all sorts of debates between the department and Congress. So it's going to be sporty no matter what. Bob Work, thank you very much. Great to have you on as always. It's great to be here, Francis. Up next, consistent health care across the entire Defense Department enterprise. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the good news and bad news for health standards. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Defense Department and the Department of Veterans Affairs have guidelines in place to make sure service members and veterans get consistent care. The devil may be in the details, though, of how the Pentagon follows those guidelines. Deborah Draper is Director of Health Care Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Deborah, welcome. It's good to see you. Um, you and your colleagues write in this work. Um, the Departments of Defense and VA had jointly developed 22 clinical practice guidelines that address specific health conditions. It sounds like a success story. Yeah, actually, the, the well, let me give you a little bit of background. So the National Defense Authorization Act of 2017 required the, the Department of Defense to establish a program to develop, implement, update, and monitor clinical practice guidelines. And this also included a provision for us to, to look at, to see how that program is working. So just in terms of definition, clinical practice guidelines are evidence-based treatment recommendations to improve the um, consistency and quality of the, the care delivered to, to, um, to patients, including the military population. And one thing that it's very important for clinical practice guidelines specific to the military population, because they may have experienced um, differences compared to the, to the civilian population. For example, they may have been involved in combat or exposure to um, environmental hazards, such as fumes from burn pits. So, so yes, the, the, the two departments have worked collaboratively with um, to develop 22 clinical practice guidelines to focus on a range of issues, including chronic diseases, mental health, and uh, pain management, among others. Uh, you and your colleagues, right, DOD and VA considered the health care needs of these populations throughout the guideline development process. Sounds like they're on the right track at doing that also. What did you find, uh, that, as I alluded to in the beginning of our conversation, Deborah, um, that uh, where the organizations are struggling as far as implementation of these guidelines? So there's probably a couple of key takeaways from our report. I mean, one, the good news is that they are in the process of, or they have developed, jointly developed, these clinical practice guidelines. Um, you know, they have 22 currently. Um, and as I said, it's a range of issues from like chronic diseases to pain management to mental health. A couple of things though, that uh, each of the military services has its own process for disseminating these clinical practice guidelines. So there is no, no standardization or no standardized process for this. And uh, also, um, you know, the, the Congress directed the, um, the Department of Defense to implement and monitor the implementation of these clinical practice guidelines. And we found that there is no systematic process in place to monitor implementation. Now, one of the things that we'll be changing is that the Department of Defense is currently transitioning its administrative operations for its military treatment facilities to its Defense Health, Authoriz Defense Health Agency. And officials there told us that it is 
part, they do plan to provide some more standardization around the clinical practice guidelines as, um, as time goes forward. The recommendation that you're making is for that development and implementation of a systemic process to monitor these uh, MTFs. What, what is the benefit that the department and what is the benefit that the, the patient will receive from that standardization, Deborah? So the process is having the systematic monitoring process would be very helpful because it would focus on making sure that variability and clinical care provided is reduced. Also with the aim of improving the quality of healthcare um, services that are provided. And overall, the goal would be to ensure better health outcomes across the military health system. Um, when you looked at these these uh, different guidelines, the implementation of these different guidelines, were, was there anything as far as the way that they were administered that was that was um, not not good or was troubling, or was it just the fact that people deliver the the care different ways, different places, and that uniformity uh, uh, was difficult for efficiencies and so forth? Well, I think you know one of the things that we focused on was the importance of. Um, that there should be uh, more standardization in how the how the process works, so that to make sure there's consistency across the department and how these clinical practice guidelines are are implemented and how they're monitored. And I mean, just to give you an example, is that um, you know we found that across the military services, the way that the um, these these guidelines are are disseminated really varies. So. Um, you know, the Army and Air Force told us that they have a process. Uh, it differs, but they, um, you know, they have different different people and different levels of the organization that are responsible. The Navy told us they don't have a formal process, but really rely on notifications from clinical communities. So, you want to make sure that there's standard standardization and that everyone's getting the same information, and that, you know, which will allow you know improved monitoring and oversight of of the implementation. Just real quickly, we're almost out of time. Was it your sense uh, from the work that you did that these are just different systems that grew up differently and that's why they're not standard or is there some other reason for it? Were you able to even ascertain? Well, I think historically the um, military services have operated very independently. And I think the aim now, particularly with the transition to the Defense Health Agency is to create more standardization across the, across the military health system. And this would include you know, issues related to the, the clinical practice guidelines. Deborah Draper, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much. Up next, hitting the limit on spending bills in Congress. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the calendar anomaly that may bite into the Pentagon. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. Congress is about to hit its annual limit of one spending bill. It passes via reconciliation. That annual limit could have an interesting implication for this year's defense spending legislation. Todd Harrison's director of the Aerospace Security Project, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Todd, thanks for coming on the program. You tweeted about this recently. What caught your eye? Yeah, so what's interesting about it is because Congress didn't pass a budget resolution for fiscal year 21, even though they went ahead and actually passed the appropriations bills uh, for FY21, uh, what they're doing with the stimulus legislation to go through uh, reconciliation is they're actually using FY21 for reconciliation. 
So what's important about that is it means that they could come back later and pass an FY22 budget resolution and have an FY22 reconciliation package as well. Uh, so the fact that they're using reconciliation now in the stimulus, which does not include defense, does not preclude the fact that they could come back later this year uh, and use reconciliation again, and this time including defense. You are wonderful on the space issues to which you have moved over the last several years, but I was so excited to see this tweet because it takes us back to the conversations you and I had 10 years ago or longer about the defense budget. Uh, and, and I wonder what is the implication for that on the way that the spending bills, the way the appropriations bills could potentially be constructed, Todd? Is there an implication there or does it not matter that much? There's a potential implication, right? Uh, so we'll have to wait till later in the year to see uh, how the politics of this actually, you know, uh, follow through. But, you know, what we're looking at is the possibility that, you know, once they get this stimulus through and there's no money for defense in it, uh, they can come back and when they're ready to pass the regular FY22 appropriations bills, um, if they're not seeing cooperation from Republicans in the Senate, um, they can bypass them by using reconciliation again. And so what that means is for defense, they could pass a defense appropriations bill without any Republican support, not in the House, not in the Senate. And then obviously, you know, they've got a Democratic controlled White House now. Um, so, you know, whatever Republican priorities that there are for defense in FY22, um, they won't necessarily be taken into account uh, if they end up using reconciliation to pass it. That makes the Democrats on Hack D and Sack D maybe the most powerful people in the defense community in Washington, doesn't it? I think it does, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, especially, you know, on the Senate side, when they've now got this threat of reconciliation that they can still use for the FY22 budget. What do you what will you watch for the markers between here and there? How will we try to predict or decide wh whether that is a, becomes a, a greater or lesser possibility? Because if it becomes a greater possibility, that could seriously change what those bills wind up looking like and where that money winds up going, couldn't it? It could, yeah. And so actually what I would be looking for is uh, kind of the, the biggest indicator of whether or not they're going to go the reconciliation route is not what happens on defense, because there tends to be more bipartisan agreement uh, on defense issues, uh, even in this highly partisan time. I would be looking for how much agreement can they find in the Senate in particular between Republicans and Democrats on non-defense issues, non-defense spending issues. Um, you know, if there are wide disagreements uh, about non-defense spending for FY22, then I think that raises the odds substantially that Democrats end up using the reconciliation option. In the context of all of that, Todd, with all of those possibilities there, what do, what different and I'm, I, I mean this genuinely and not rhetorically, what difference does the Biden administration's budget request do probably sometime next month, maybe a little bit late? What does that really mean? How much does it matter? Yeah, no, I think it, it will matter a lot because Democrats in the House and the Senate, they're going to take their cues from the Biden administration's budget request. He is the leader of the party now. Uh, and so they're going to take their cues from that. I think, you know, it's uh, up to Republicans to figure out what's their strategy 
for how to respond to that. Uh, they're clearly not going to agree with everything that's in that budget request, especially on the non-defense side. Uh, and so they've got to, you know, ask themselves how much leverage do they really have, you know, when ultimately Democrats can pass this without them. I appreciate this conversation in particular because we focus on this program a lot on the uh, authorization piece of this and not as much on the appropriations piece as you and I are today. But the authorization piece is also important. Matching those two could potentially be different as a result of this narrative, as a result of this dialogue, couldn't it, Todd? Yeah, it absolutely could. And we've seen this happen in the past that sometimes the, the track that the authorization bills are on, the NDAA, um, you know, can end up on a very different track than the appropriations end up on. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's always important to remember that the authorization bill is a policy bill. It sets policy, it can put uh, constraints on uh, spending or when money can be used, um, but it cannot appropriate money. Only an appropriations bill can actually provide money. So the defense budget is ultimately set by the appropriations bills. Uh, and so, you know, using reconciliation, they can short circuit uh, that, uh, you know, filibuster process in the Senate uh, and push something through. The, the other thing I would point out is, you know, this hasn't been an issue for the past 10 years because we had the Budget Control Act budget caps, right? And the budget caps are ultimately what was, you know, setting the level of defense and non-defense spending. You could not change the budget caps using reconciliation. That the Senate rules said that. Uh, so, you know, this is the first time for FY22 that you actually could set the defense budget using reconciliation because you don't have to worry about these caps anymore because the caps ended in FY21. Todd Harrison, thanks very much as always. Appreciate it. All right. Glad to be back. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. You get a preview of every one of our shows when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GovMatters to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.